Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Telegraph. the Telegraph Podcasts Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph I'm Brian Moore and this week I'm joined in the studio by the former London Irish Director of Rugby, Nick Kennedy Hello Nick Hi there Well, Premiership is come to the very, very sharp end. Wasps will face Saracens at Allianz Park. Leicester Tigers secure a Champions Cup place for next season. And Bath have also uh, got into the Champions Cup with Matt Banahan signing off with a hat-trick for his club. John Kingston signs off at the stoop in a, an ignominious manner with a crushing defeat to Exeter, who topped the table. And they will also obviously be in the uh, playoffs. We'll be talking about Pro 14. We'll be talking about Sevens just later on. Nick, what do you think of the quality of the Premiership this year? Um, it's been very, very high, especially from an Irish <laughs> point of view, going into it from the Championship. Um, I've, you know, I've been at some fantastic games. If you look at last week, Newcastle against Tigers, you know, it wasn't the, the best quality game with, with tries coming from everywhere, but extreme high drama very very high on the entertainment scale and um, I've, I've really enjoyed as a, as a spectator over the last couple of months really enjoyed watching the Premiership Well I think you're right on drama and it always is the same when you get to the end of the season for me when you have uh, teams like Quinns like Saints that are big names that are previous winners and they've let, let's face it they've had terrible seasons and if they're not around to compete, you know, I think overall it drags the standard down. And both directors of rugby have gone Jim uh, Malinder for Saints and John Kingston uh, at Quinns. They were both away a long time. And although that brings stability on one hand, on the other hand, the cliche is that sometimes you need a fresh voice. Where is the balance between getting the stability and keeping fresh ideas and keeping moving forward. I think it's a, it's an art, isn't it? It isn't, there's no perfect science behind it. I, I saw a, a tweet, I can't remember where it was from, but it was basically time in the job for a director of rugby. And if you look at the top four, Exeter, Saris, Wasp and Newcastle, 
they were the top four of time in the job. So Rob Baxter, um, Mark McCall, Di Young, Dean Richards have been in the job the longest. So it shows that Newcastle are a great example of that. You know, they don't have the money of some of the other teams. They have signed some big names this season in, in Flood, Matavesi, Memos, even though he hasn't played a lot. But they have had a little bit more money than previous years. However, it's that stability and, and continuity that Dean Richards could build along with he, the, tweaking the coaching staff. So John Wells was the head coach. He mixes things up, puts Dave Walder as the head coach. And that what that might do is just, just change the philosophy slightly, change the emphasis on a training day. You know, Tuesday, instead of doing a little bit more defence, actually, we're doing more attack because the head coach is the attack coach as well. So I think, you know, Dean's done really well there, freshening things up, changing the, the training stimulus, the training week. Some of the other coaches, maybe, is, is the way forward. But as I say at the start, it's, it's, there's no perfect science to it. Well, I think if you look at the two clubs I've said, their backroom staff didn't change that much over a, quite a prolonged period of time. And also, their playing staff. And one of the problems, and it's a big problem for directors of rugby, is when you have players who are internationals, they're obviously really good quality players and they help you win things. They both have won the premiership. There comes a point at which you have to be looking to replace them, especially if they're all likely to go you know, relatively together. And the time to replace players is not when they want to retire themselves. It's before then, because every player wants to go out on their own uh, terms. And it's not until you retire that you can actually see that maybe one or two years before I thought I was ready to go, I'd actually started to go downhill. You can't see it when you're playing. You just can't, can't do it. It's only with perspective and, you know, with hindsight but really good teams, and the All Blacks are probably the best example of this. Is just saying, yep, yeah, thank you very much. But uh, if you want a one-year contract to stay around, maybe. But really, thank you. And we've got to move on. And a lot of times it causes trouble because supporters don't understand it. And you get a lot of flack. But if you don't get that right, you've got a situation, I think, at both those clubs where there are very senior players. They've been very successful. But at the moment, they're not you know, quite carrying the club forward. And I can see with both those, it's not just in terms of coaching, but in terms of the playing staff, there's going to have to be wholesale changes. But you can't do them all at once because you've got a salary cap. So whoever they get long-term at those two places have similar but very difficult rebuilding jobs to do. They do, yeah. And, and the worry with, with teams like that, because they have won the Premiership in the past, you know, they've won trophies, when it starts to not go well, if you're trying to progress your game and you don't win games, you always revert back to what you know as, as, as players. Yeah. And if the coaches are trying to push it on and John Kingston would have had a slightly different spin than Conor O'Shea, he wants to try this. And the player's like, hang on, we won the premiership doing this. But they, they can't see the bigger picture that that was actually years ago. And they need to press on. They need to push their game on. But I think Alex Ferguson was the best at letting guys go maybe a year, a, a year too soon. Mm -hmm. And they could go off and have a great year elsewhere. But... His succession planning was so good that he knew the guys coming through. So an interesting one is Matt Banahan. He was the hero this weekend, got a hat-trick. All the Bath supporters, why are you letting him go? But they might have someone coming through the academy that can do that. Yeah. And, and there is a price to it. You know, Gloucester gave him an extra year on his deal. They gave him a lot more money. And you know, only time will tell as to who that was a good move for. Exeter keep progressing. I was really pleased that they managed to keep the standards this year because I thought... Second year syndrome, everyone will be gunning from, might be worked out. But yet, they've managed 
to keep the standard and particularly their standards and their accuracy in and around the breakdown. And of all the teams, and this includes Saracens actually, by the way, in the Premiership, I think they are probably the most adept at that particular phase of the game. Yeah, I'd agree. The, the way they play, they want to play with such tempo, the breakdown has to be a priority for them. And um, I think they've got a very good strength and conditioning department down there in that all of the guys look extremely fit, but powerful as well. They've got the ability to move people off the ball at, at ease, and that's from 1 to 15. Yeah, look, they've had another brilliant season. And it is, once you're up there, everyone wants to chop you down. And they go down there wanting a huge win. The, the prep goes up a level in the week. You want to take on the champions. And they've they've stayed there. They've stayed at the top. Even once they knew they'd finished the season, they were in a home final, home semi-final. They kept their standards and they kept putting big scores on teams. You've seen this uh, close-up and from the very sharp end. Where does Eddie Jones look to to solve his number seven problem? Is there a player out there? Are there two or three players out there? Or is it a case of, well, they're very good players at what they do, so you've got to adapt to make it suit them? I think there, there are quite a few sevens out there. Not many have been given the opportunity. Simmons stepped up and played the role at eight while Benny Villapola was away. I'd like to see him at seven. He's actually proved from eight that he is a good, good jackler. He can get over the ball. He can get his team turnovers and he can carry as well. If you look at... Good um, hands as well. Yeah, very good hands. Look at someone like Stefan Armitage, who a couple of years ago, everyone was saying he should be the seven for England because of what he can do. Simmons is similar in that he can ball carry very well. It isn't just the old school, you know, Neil back, no no offence to his ball carrying ability, but it wasn't, it wasn't right up there. He was a, a breakdown specialist, the best in the game. Uh, Stefan Armitage could do both. And that's why I'd like to see Simmons at seven. You know, He is very good at the breakdown. He can get those turnovers. He gets in good positions. Then you've got another dimension to your back row is that he's a superb carrier as well. Of the ones that he's trying out at the moment, are there any better prospects? Uh, I'm there's not, not sure. a, There's not a raft of contenders, is there? That, you know, to be fair to Jones, you know, he hasn't got, as other coaches have had for 30-odd years, um, you know, two or three really good uh, open sides. No, and th- th- there's been talk of the way that the Premiership's reft. You're not really getting much advantage over the ball. So team selection has moved slightly away from those out-and-out um, open sides, you know, those breakdown specialists, people looking for a slightly different balance in their back row. Whereas if you look at the Welsh team's play and the way that the, the, the Pro League is refed, you, you get away with a little bit more at the breakdown. They give you an extra couple seconds on the ball there to get the turnovers. And maybe that's why Wales have got so many sevens and England are actually struggling for the out-and-out breakdown specialists. Well, that's, um, that was certainly mooted as a theory. Is that your experience? Is that what you would concur with? Yeah, in the premiership, it's actually the better way to defend is if it is on, you do go for it. But it has to be clearly on. Most defences now, if you look at these these top teams, I was at Was Newcastle on the weekend. Newcastle had a little bit of joy at the breakdown early on, but mostly defences just spread. They just want 13 men on their feet. They want that wall there mm-hmm. and, and just let teams keep coming at them. Defences are so well organised now. You can just wait and, and just keep keep your spacing, keep your width, get off the line and force teams back. Well, we haven't yet gone into detail about what Dean Richards has done at the Newcastle Falcons, but we will do now because I'm really pleased to say we've got Ali Hogg, who is the Newcastle Falcons and Scotland back rower. He's retiring at the end of the season, so I understand. Hello, Ali. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? I'm all right, mate. I'm here with uh, Nick Kennedy. Now, look, Newcastle do not have a huge budget. They do not have huge crowds, and yet they find themselves in the playoff. How much of that is down to the squad? How much of that is down to the coaching? How much of that is down to Dean Richards? 
Well, a combination of three, to be honest. Um, we've had a settled squad. We've had uh, sort of core of the squad together for sort of well, five, six years now. Um, and, and the sort of well, yeah, guys like Will Welsh, uh, Mark Wilson, um, along with sort of Joe Hodgson left, Mickey Young's come back as well. We've got a real sort of good core of people and, uh, and it's kind of helped sort of grow the club and, and, and helps sort of, as they've matured, everyone else sort of around them matured and, and help us sort of progress. And with the likes of, sort of Dave coming in a couple of years ago and bringing us a new attack shape to us and taking a couple of years to get used to that. And they sort of started to see sort of, sort of bearing fruits a little bit last year, finishing the highest we had done in, in a while. And then obviously this year, uh, getting into the top four, four, which is great. Was there any talk in the week on who you'd rather play, Exeter or Saracens? Or was it just a case of, of concentrate on Wasps? Uh, yeah, just concentrate on Wasps. We didn't even sort of mention that. Obviously, the way the results went last week, we knew we'd qualified. So, in fact, it was a little bit of a dead rubber. Uh, it would just matter if you played Exeter away or, or Saracens away, which is, um, you, you don't really want to play either, to be honest. But, um no, there was nothing. It was just about concentrating on wasps and, and sort of um, playing as well as we can do. Unfortunately, we, we probably had our worst game. And that's our first sort of 50 minutes. We were, we were pretty poor, um, which sort of didn't uh, go according to plan. But hopefully, that's kind of a few of the boys. So that's a mulligan out of the way, and we can kind of uh, concentrate and extra now. And, and how's things looking in the physio room? I know a lot of your top performers, the likes of Callum Green, Robinson. Uh, Michael Young, Sonotti, Gonover, Flood. It, it would have been a busy week for them in the physio room. Are you confident they'll be back for the semi? Yeah, I think uh, Nicky Notti um, uh, will be back. And uh, Toby's sort of going to be close as well, which is which is good. I think Nicky Young will be fine as well. So uh, Sean Robinson's out, unfortunately. But um, I just think uh, a case of just getting those guys fit. We've got, I've got a bit of a down week this week. I'm actually standing on my speech talking to you just now. We've got a couple of days off, which is nice. Um, uh, and then we're sort of coming in the tail end of the week. And then obviously next week's when it kind of all ramps up. Ali, when I spoke to uh, Dean a lot earlier in the season, he was very keen to impress on me the fact that the club themselves do a lot of background work before they sign players. And when they speak to them and their agents and what have you, it's not necessarily just their playing ability. In fact, actually, that's not the first thing uh, that they look for. They were saying, Dean was saying, because Newcastle is relatively isolated and people have got to be able to live, you know, in quite a small community, which is quite, uh, you know, far from not civilization, but, you know, from the rest of the country, it takes a certain type of person because you've got to be in each other's pockets for a, a long time. And so he said, we look for certain types of characters and they have to be able to get on and that's just as important as their playing ability and being able to fit into the team and the team units. What is the spirit and how, is, how have you built that there? Yeah, I, th- I think obviously everyone gets on well. We've got a good tight-knit squad. Um, boys, I think a lot of the boys met up yesterday for a few beers. Nice sort of bank holiday weekend and um, everyone's sort of keen to hang out and as you say, it's about... Getting that togetherness and, and when the kind of chips are down in games, you want to know that the guy next year is prepared to sort of put his body on the line and, and not go missing. And I think that's been the sort of key of, of Dean signings that he uh, he likes a bargain, but also he, <laughs> he likes the sort of the, the right type of uh, right type of player. Um, and if he if he, can, he thinks he can fit that personality into the squad, and they're they're going to work hard. I think like prime example is Gary Graham. You kind of pluck Gary Graham out of, sort of nowhere. To, um, at Jersey I'd been at sort of gala before that and he kind of looked at him saw his sort of credentials what, what type of player he was and, and how, how he operated he thought he fit perfectly into into the squad and I think Gary's a prime example of how that's kind of worked for him and he, he's, he, he stepped up obviously getting his England call up which is great and then it just helps sort of 
bring the, the, the squad on um, and it kind of sh- helps people mm-hmm. see that like, if you can come to Newcastle we can develop and we, we can get people into the England squad because I think in the, in the in the past that if you're playing for Newcastle then that's your kind of England chance is gone but I think hopefully we're sort of turning that around and showing that look, well if you come and play here you've just got as much chance of getting picked for England as if you go to sort of perceived bigger clubs um, and and I think the guys have well, also got Mark Wilson last year getting his England call up I think Will Welsh has been unlucky not to get you know Saxon call up and Callum Green's been outstanding this year as well so these guys are hopefully starting to knock on Eddie Jones's door that look yes we're playing Newcastle but we're performing we're performing better than what you perceive as household names um, and week in week out so give it, give us a shot So how do you beat Exeter? Keep the ball I think that's one thing Exeter are very very good at they keep the ball for long phases to, uh, a lot of phases um, they keep sort of bad and weighing you down weighing you down so the more you have the ball the less they can do that to you um, and, and playing the right here is the pitch because if they get in your 22 with a number of phases they're pretty hard to stop um, and I heard, I heard you talking about there about numbers on feet and defence previous conversation and, mm-hmm. and I agree um, if we can get 13, 14 men on our feet defending the whole time because if we start putting too many into the breakdown or losing guys that rock that's when Exeter can exploit you um, so I think the key is if we look after the ball and we get our set piece right and get out our own half then we'll have a chance Well Ali uh, the best of luck in that and really seriously the best of luck in retirement um, I don't much. know what plans you've got but uh, you know, I hope it's good to you Cheers thank you very much Brian. Thank you bye bye Cheers A couple of questions for Nick through social media. Friends of the Stoop would love to hear from Nick on the speculation in the press about his next move and potentially working alongside Ben Ryan. Is two heads better than one when it comes to running and managing a team? Two heads uh, can be better than one. I think it, it very much depends on, on the dynamic of that team. You see teams doing it in a lot of different ways now, whether it be a, a director of rugby like Dai Young, and then he might have a, a recruitment guy um, Kevin Harmon just under him and then a head coach as well um, or just an old school director of rugby like Dean who wouldn't necessarily do Dean Richards wouldn't necessarily do any coaching but he does all of the off field the academy will report into him he'll be out meeting all the agents we just spoke about there you know the, the work he'd do on the personality of the player because there's so many agents now that's actually a very time consuming part of, of the job so um, you know using Dave Walder to really take charge of the coaching there has, has, has worked for Newcastle Agents can be good and bad. What standard are the rugby agents? Mixed, mixed in my uh, in my experience. I've been working now with them for probably three and a half years, and um, everyone does it slightly differently. There's, there's a lot of them now. A lot of people are seeing that as a as a career route, and that the standard is extremely mixed. From just the odd text message once a year when their player is coming out of contract to someone who who, who might call you a little bit more and try and bargain here and there on on their percentage as well as uh, as well as the player's contract. This is the same debate, it seems to me, as they've got in football. Does the manager pick everything? Does he do the recruitment? Does he do the coaching? Do you leave it to a director of football or whatever? Is that the same in rugby? And how difficult is it to keep the demarcation between all the roles? 
I think you need to have very, very clear job descriptions when you go in. And the guy that picks the team, he, he has to be the one in charge. Whilst some people cut it up differently and a, a general manager or an operations director might sit next to a, a head coach if there's no just outright director of rugby. But the, the, the head coach has to then have the final say on the selection. It's key that the two of them get on very well because ultimately you're picking a team. The other guy's going to go out and sign the players. He has to sign players that you want to pick. Um, I, I think that relationship is so important if you go that route. And that's why often it's easier just to go a director of rugby. You're the boss. You pick the team. You decide who comes in and then get people to support you in your role. You almost answered the question I was going to ask. I was going to say, which of the two do you favour? I mean, if, from my experience, a director of rugby with, <laughs> I didn't necessarily have the, have a, a lot of support. We spoke about there, Di Young would have a, a head of recruitment in, in Kevin Harmon, who'd also look after the academy. Um, you know, because that is time consuming. There's over 100 registered agents that you're dealing with, as well as there's an awful lot of tape that you have to watch. Again, we spoke about Dean there, looking at Gary Graham. Out of Jersey last season, all eight of their starting pack got signed to premiership teams. And you don't just watch one game of Jersey and then sign them. You know, you, you watch the last 10 games. You want to know as much about them as possible. And then also you want to go and meet the guy. When can you meet him around his games? It, it, it's very time consuming in, in, the, in terms of the recruitment there. So for me, a, a director of rugby with a head coach, with someone to help with the recruitment it is the, the best scenario. And then you can actually focus on, on steering the team, driving the team and getting things right. Everyone getting their department right. A question from Tom Moore. Are promoted teams doomed to yo-yo between the Premiership and the Championship until ring fencing occurs, or is there another way to stop the cycle? I think the other way to stop the cycle is is the way that Bristol have gone about business so far. You know, we don't know yet. We'll we'll see how they land in the Premiership. We'll see how that first block of games goes for them. But if you do want to break the cycle, you have to spend above and beyond. Um, I was going to say it does help if you've got a billionaire backer. <laughs> well, well, that's it, and, and that is it. If you look at Piatau, nine hundred thousand pounds. Luatua, six fifty. Madigan, four fifty, etc. Like these guys are on a, a load of money. Now, would they have signed there if it wasn't for that money? No. Because the top top players How don't want to play get in the all championship those under the under premiership salary cap. Um, their recruitment has been savvy elsewhere. They've brought in a lot of championship players to make up those squad players who wouldn't be on as much as a normal premiership squad player. Other than that, I don't know. I'd be the, I'd be the wrong man to ask at that, as my only experience is is well under the cap. The ring fencing argument from the Romantics is that you can't have that. It runs against all competitive instinct, and I simply say. If we're going to have this debate, let's have it in the real world, not in a theoretical, notional world. And the fact is that there is not enough talent in this country to fill uh, 12 or 13 uh, teams. There is not enough money uh, because if there was a queue of people wanting to invest in rugby clubs, there are several opportunities and they're open now and they're not doing so, it's proving very difficult. So when you're talking about clubs who might come up, and it always bring up Exeter. That is a one-off, and it's been tremendously well done. But I look at the championship, and I'm sorry, there simply are not a raft of teams that want to come up. And you've got this problem every year of everyone rushing for a one-year up and down, no real opportunity to play young players, which you would have if you were ring festive for two or three years, Foreign players bought in because they are the finished article to try and either get you up or keep you up. And I just say, don't cut it off completely, but let pe- 
people do it in a more orderly way. So it can be a two-year period, a three-year, whatever you want to agree. But that would give people a chance to develop on a more even keel. And it would stop the one-off mad dash, which occurs every year, top or bottom. Yeah, I can see both sides of the argument in that there's definitely been more young English talent playing. You know, as I'd have come up from the championship, London Irish have got an excellent academy with, um, you know, there's five in the under-20s this well, year. They're playing they're all over more, the league as well for start-off, aren't they? Yeah, look, they've been, uh, they've been raided over the years, definitely. But you'd have just gone with those guys, knowing that if we lose, it's not the end of the world, as opposed to... If, if there is relegation, it's not the end of the world, but it's pro- probably the end of your job um, and the end of the club making any money. So that that, that is an issue. However, I, I do then feel for teams, imagine a whole season knowing that you're just playing to see where you finish in a table and you're not going to go up. And the teams do have ambition down the championship. You look at Pirates looking for that new stadium, which looks fantastic. You look at Yorkshire, who have cut back this season, but that's almost the long-term plan to try and come big in the next two seasons. But but the main one, and the one I've watched a lot this year, is is Ealing. Now, they had two games against Bristol, and you speak to speak to Pat Lamb about those two games. It wasn't an easy win for Bristol at all. And the Ealing scrum actually killed Bristol's scrum, and that game could have gone either way. And if Bristol were lost those two... Ealing could have been the team to go up because Ealing, they Ealing did have even, the rugby ability. Ealing don't even have a stand. <laughs> I know, but they'd have to go elsewhere. And, you know, a, a, a Brentford, for example, or, or, or another ground, a Wimbledon. Um, and that's something that they're looking into. And they've got a, a rich, ambitious owner. So I, I do see both sides of the argument and definitely a lot of due diligence needs to go in with, can these guys go up? Can they actually survive up? Because I agree that the, the yo-yo up and down, just it isn't working. It's very, very hard to get a business going when your sponsors don't want to come in because you could be down the championship with, with very small viewing figures and small, small crowds. Well, let's look at the Pro 14 because there are rumours that it will expand again. Uh, Wales Online reporting the, the Sharks, Lions and Stormers are also likely to commit to the start of the 2021 season. Sands are strongly deny this. I mean, of course they would do, even if they were going to jump ship, so to speak. It'd be an interest. I, I don't, is the calendar there to do that? And uh, they could shove them in different conferences, which they will do. And I can understand them wanting to be there because actually there's probably more money in it TV-wise, I would think. It seems to me that the Pro 14 is about right at the moment. I'm... I'm struggling to understand why they would need three extra South African franchises. Yeah, I'm not sure how the league's doing in terms of viewing figures, in, in terms of making money with sponsors. I know they've just changed their their TV rights, have, have moved. So obviously not quite happy with where they sit at the moment and they're, they're trying to... They're trying new things. They've got a new CEO who really wants to shake things up. He wants to make the league the most interesting league and the best league around. So he's trying to grow. He's trying to make it bigger. He's having a lot of conversations with with different teams, different clubs. And this will be on the back of the other teams enjoying the experience, coming to going over to South Africa, the South Africans coming over here. You know, the likes of the, the Sharks and the Lions speaking to the Cheetahs and, and hearing all about it and thinking that they can improve their rugby programme as well as make more money. If he's doing that, is there a prospect of a Georgian team, a Russian team, a German team? I'm, I'm sure there is, yeah, I'm sure there is. and you Because know, they are be, huge I, markets and they're, strong, yeah. they're, they're very much improved over the last four or five years. Yes, yeah. Look, you just you just see them getting better and better every year, and um, the more they can play at that higher standard, 
the, the, the more improvement there'll be with those teams. And uh, it is exciting. But then you do, it works at the moment, adding a few more teams because of the two conferences. But then it's, where do you draw the line? Mm. And then maybe you have the relegation. And But then there's no league for them to come up from. If you're looking at Georgia, you're looking at Germany. They all play in such, um, such different places and different leagues. Well, Scarlet's remain on course to retain their title. They beat the Cheetahs. Uh, it was underwhelming, uh, the quarterfinal, I think. And I actually thought that Edinburgh might, just might do Munster. And maybe they could. They could have done. Maybe they should have done. Yeah, I mean, Edinburgh have had such a great back end of the season. Again, it took Richard Cocker a little bit of time to, to stamp his his name on the squad and, and, you know, sort of whip those guys into shape the way that he think, he wants things done. And he is a proven winner. Mm. Look at his track record at Tigers. Um London Irish went up there mid-season and that was a sort of turnaround for them. They had a great result up there against London Irish and, and they've really kicked on from there and you can just see how they've improved in so many areas of the game and, and players have gone there and, and flourished and I think he, he's given them the environment, the culture and the attitude to do that, to know that they're not just one of those teams who are there or thereabouts. He wants to turn them into champions yeah. and um, you know that their success over the last couple of months very, very nearly did do that and you can just see next year them, them taking up another level and, and really challenging at the end of the season. Well, Western Force are back playing rugby in a new league with new laws. Quite revolutionary. They've got permission from World Rugby to try four new laws. And I'm pleased to say that uh, we've got with us to go through these. Jamie Wall is a rugby writer in New Zealand. Hello, Jamie. Hello, Brian. How are you? I'm okay, mate. Um, the can you go through the four new laws one after the other for us, please? Sure. Well, um, the one that everyone's kind of been talking about is the uh, seven point power try, mm-hmm. uh, which is if you can score a try uh, in unbroken continuity from your own twenty two, it's worth seven points. Um, and the exciting thing about that is the posts light up if you gain possession in twenty two, and then those sort of go out when the continuity has been broken. So there's sort of something to keep the fans, I guess, uh, involved there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the more, uh, I guess, mundane ones, um, the, uh, the line-outs can be taken quickly whenever, um, as soon as the attacking team uh, can line up. Scrums, uh, there's a one-minute time limit on the scrums, and there's 12 rolling substitutions uh, throughout the game. Okay. So that's the four laws that they're trialling. Well, let's go with the uh, the first one. I presume if you get uh, an interceptor, they knock forward and uh, it bounces into your hands and you're in your own 22 and you run the length of the field. Does that count? Yep, that does. <laughs> it does. Yeah. And uh, that, I mean, that to me was the first kind of thing I, I thought of, which is uh, that uh, you, you're kind of getting rewarded for, for something that isn't really um, down to anything you've done. Um, and uh, in the, and just uh, in the game that they played on on the weekend, so that the force uh, did draw like a, a sellout crowd to their ground um, against the Fijian side, and um, there were no power tries scored. Uh, it was the team's first um, hit out of, of the year, so um, I guess it's something for them to work on. And also uh, the thing about this one is this isn't exactly new. They uh, World Rugby often used the South African. Um, university competition to trial out yes. new, new laws. It's a little petri dish of a tournament that they use and they have actually done something like this before. I think it was if you scored a try from behind your own half, it was worth 10 points or something like that. So yeah, I think that's why World Rugby were kind of happy for them to go ahead with this one because it was um, 
it's it's uh, yeah, it's something they'd originally kind of thought up. So if it was discarded after that one, why is it going to draw any more favour this time? Yeah, I think um, that's got a lot to do with the, the competition itself. Uh, at the moment, rugby union is in a bit of a state in Australia, and this this competition that started up uh, has has to do something to attract um, fans, uh, not just away from the existing rugby competition, but also from the rugby league and the Australian Football League as well. Uh, so they kind of need to come out with something, I guess, revolutionary to attract people who normally wouldn't watch rugby to have a look, I guess. And is it proposed that these are trialled wider or only for this competition? No, no, it's only for this competition. And even calling it a competition isn't quite accurate either. The World Rugby Series is only just a series of friendly games mm-hmm. this year. Um, they're just going to see how they go. So they played against Fiji on the weekend. They're also playing against Tonga and, and Samoa. And also having a couple of games against the Crusaders and a big one against the Melbourne Rebels. Um, now, that, that's kind of interesting because last year, when Super Rugby cut the force, it was either going to be them or the Rebels that got cut. So it's a bit of a grudge match there. But there's nothing really on the line. Um, it's just, like I said, a series of about yeah, seven friendly matches. And then they're looking to expand into a proper competition next year. How, how did the scrum and lineouts look in the game? Was there any lineout contesting at all, or was it just very quick? One team would get there and go. No, actually, the lineouts were more or less the same way they were um, before. <laughs> uh, yeah, again, this isn't um, a really a new one either. Uh, we actually had this had this law in the um, the NPC in New Zealand about ten years ago, uh, where you could where you didn't have to. It was a slight variation; you didn't have to match up with the numbers in the lineout. Um, there were a few quick ones taken, but then again, there's there's a lot of quick lineouts taken these days. Anyway, uh, I think you would the teams would probably need to get their head around exactly how they would use that that law um, to their advantage, and they hadn't really done that yet. So it, it, it's still, I mean, to me, the whole game uh, was very much just a, a really another game of rugby. Uh, like I think we'll probably see the, uh, the lineout laws come into come into play probably a little bit down the track. What happened if the scrum wasn't completed within the minute? Uh, it's a free kick to the uh, team with team with the ball, or uh, uh, if someone uh, they were just more but more harsh on the penalties uh, around um, collapsing the close in the scrums. So if you're in trouble in the scrum, you just mess around for a minute and then you get the ball on a, on either a penalty or a free kick. Yeah, that's right. Again, though, I, I think this one this one for me is another case of. The, the league just trying to differentiate itself and trying to distance itself from what the main criticisms of rugby because that is, uh, is something that Australian rugby especially does face because it's competing directly against the sport whether in, a, in rugby league uh, where the, the scrum is simply just a way to restart play. Uh, and I think that's kind of what they're going for because they need to attract people from that audience to, to have a look at this game. It is interesting, though, because if this does kind of go further, and I think I feel like this is probably, out of all of these laws, the one that would most likely get adopted in a, in a wider sense, um, that it would pretty much start drawing scrums uh, to the way rugby league does it, which is completely depowered and simply a way to restart play. Uh, because uh, at the moment, I mean, you know, you're not even allowed to hit anymore. So, you know, the ne- next natural step is to just uh, set everyone down and, just get the ball in and out. Yeah, yeah, and that's the problem I have with some things like this. As you say, Australia have peculiar problems with Union competing there, not like everyone else. And if these laws are for the rest of the world as well, 
that's the problem I have. Just almost, you know, not kowtowing, but, you know, pandering to one particular market, which no one else has, and then fundamentally changing, which it would, the aspects like scrums, which are very important. And one of the USPs from Union uh, over League, if you go down that route, you know, you'll get a quasi-league game. And there's a better quasi-league game. It's called Rugby League, and it's a very good game. And if you want to play and watch that, play and watch that, because it's a great game, and so is Union. But, you know, you, you can't have... It's like being half pregnant. I just don't see anything that is a poor facsimile of rugby league succeeding anyway. I guess yeah, you're right. It, it is a problem. I mean, I would also say it is a it is a problem facing rugby union in New Zealand as well. I mean, obviously the competition against rugby league here uh, isn't quite as big. There is only one professional team here in New Zealand, but um, the thing is, is they're doing really well at the moment uh, in Auckland, and um, nobody's going to watch the Blues. Uh, anymore, they're all going to watch the Warriors because you know the Warriors are winning, uh, and so it does often. Whenever a, a league team is getting more uh, attention, it, it does bring up these old arguments of which is the better game. And I guess for us down here, uh, because the audiences are so mixed together, uh, there's always going to be that um, tension, <laughs> I guess, uh, between the two fan bases. Well, the way to get more people to watch the Blues is get them winning and playing decent rugby, really. Jamie Wall, thank you very much. Thank you. OK, time to talk about Sevens, because I'm really pleased we can speak to the former England Sevens captain who's on the line, Rob Vickerman. Hello, Rob. Hello. Hello, mate. I'm uh, here with uh, Nick Kennedy. Now, the Rugby World Sevens, um, San Francisco, that's not bad in July, is it? It's not a bad one, no, I must admit, <laughs> although it's not a bad series to be on full stop, if I'm honest. It's a bit of a Grand Prix. How popular is this going to be on the West Coast? That's, that's the big question. Uh, ultimately, they're going to be gauged by crowd interaction. It was perfectly timed with the Las Vegas Sevens happening in March that the USA won, and the type of reaction that saw was formidable. I mean, there were already pretty big personalities on the US team, but for them to feature on the main channels in the new mm. rooms in the USA was a big thing, so... A little bit frightening, I guess, from a, from a European perspective, because if the US did wake up to rugby, then it would be a pretty scary entity how good they could be, yet alone getting the cast-offs from the likes of NFL, NBA. You know, you're looking at the fact CrossFit's now a pretty big sport over there. So I've got the athletes, and it's going to be gauged this July. I think it's well-timed. I think it's got uh, a lot of growth to happen, and it's also at the AT&T, so in a baseball stadium, to so talk about ticking all the boxes. I think World Rugby have nailed this one. Well, I read something about a major league series uh, in, in rugby. I don't know if that, uh, I'd have to look at it a, a bit more, but if that is, suggests it's going to mirror things like the, uh, the, the football or soccer, as they call it over there, how are they going to get over the perennial problems of travel? Yeah, I think, well, the MLR that's happening in the US at the moment is more of a, it used to be more of a domestically uh, based around universities. They've now got standalone franchises. It failed previously under one owner but now they've gone for individual franchises, and that seems a better model. So, again, you know, if you're a championship player in the UK, you want to be playing some decent level of rugby, but living a lifestyle in the US, and that seems a no-brainer for them. So they're on the cusp of it. Obviously, logistics is always going to be a problem in the US, which is why they're looking at pools of where to play it. Mm. You think you've got the New York clubs that are pretty big and prominent on the West Coast who wouldn't want to play for the likes of San Diego and LA franchises. So I think it's, it's a really interesting model, and again, when they start getting rugby into schools, which is happening, that's when these bigger conversations will have to start happening because, you know, look at the, the, 
the major economies that aren't particularly buying into rugby have been China and the USA, uh, and they're very much at the forefront of how rugby is developing across there. So. Um, how different is the structure to the World Series? And is that because of the American audience? Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think they have probably changed it a little bit for that. I mean, I've, I've got a bit of a stick this week, but online, because I've, I've championed the format, and there's a few people who don't like change, and obviously a bit of Yorkshire, but I'm well-versed with that line. <laughs> but the thing that really is interesting is they've made it high-energy, entertaining rugby from the start. So for those not in the know, it's a 24-team format, which only ever used to be seen in Hong Kong. And having played in Hong Kong a few times, you basically, you could put a pretty poorly performing team out and still win your first pool games in, in Hong Kong. So what they've done is flipped it. Four, 24 teams, and they basically take it in, in eight. So the, the bottom-seeded eight teams have to play the middle-seeded eight teams on a Friday night knockout game. Lose it, you've got no chance of progressing. You're into the bowl. You then gain qualification to play in the next round of games, which is the first time the top eight seeds will be playing again on the Friday evening. So talk about high drama. You lose one game in this Rugby Sevens World Cup. You're out. You win four. You can be world champions. So that is, for me, a very exciting prospect. Who are the favourites? Well, looking at it in terms of the seeded draw, it mirrors Wimbledon in a sense to try and make sure one and two are going to go into the top, and that would be Fiji and South Africa. So I think in terms of the favourites, you're not going to look any further past Fiji. They're just a formidable team. But having seen the Commonwealth Games recently, the type of attraction that drew New Zealand beat Fiji. But sadly, the only way to do so is to basically get them fighting. So <laughs> my, my sole prerogative as an Englishman playing against Fiji was to get yellow carded. And if I'd done that, I'd done my job. Because if they're fighting, they're not thinking too much about this crazy offloads that they're capable of. So... Uh, there are teams capable of beating Fiji, but I think for the wider public, I think it's great that Fiji are going well. You ask anyone in the USA about rugby, they know nothing about it, but generally they know what a hacker is. So they have an understanding about the All Blacks, and certainly with the playing um, of games across there by the senior team. They're, they're also going to be fancied. So I think New Zealand and Fiji, for me, would be up there. But again, the USA, you know, the power of a home draw for them is huge. They will play, if it all works out, England in the course finals. So that could be one for the neutral well, where are England? Because it was obviously a golden period. You were in and around that. But these things are cyclical. Where are we in uh, the cycle? Yeah, well, not, not the best at the moment. If I was Brian, I think they're down eighth at the moment. So really are uh, not in a great place. It'd be interesting, you know, put the connotations of, of Nick's thoughts to this because of the whole premiership outcast. So at the moment, England sevens is a silo. It's completely a separate entity to the world of 15s, apart from the occasional player. Now, when I was playing, certainly when Nick was playing, believe it or not, he was uh, one of the better performers um, on the seven series. So when you were an aspiring professional in the premiership and weren't perhaps making regular starts, you'd then look to be involved in a sevens programme. Now, for me, that was wonderful. Look at the players that are qualified from that type of route. You've got Strettle, Danny Kerr, Tom Vandell, Matthew Tate even. So these players who were prominent in the game of sevens go on with Ben Fode and Lee Dixon, Top Shojo, that type of character. So... Um, they're not doing very well at the moment, England. And, and the reason being, I believe, is, is there's no real route to sevens. There's no under, understanding of the pathway toward it. So you're either in that bubble where you're traveling the world, playing sevens, wonderful lifestyle, or you're perhaps in a 15s mantra where you're just trying to crack into a premiership campaign. That's just brutal. And there's, for me, too many professional bag holders. But if you want to learn how to play rugby and travel and see the sights, then there's got to be more buy-in from the premiership clubs. But at the same time, there needs to be investment there. And at the moment, there's not. So England not doing well, to answer your question. Not doing well in the women's series either. 
again, flipping between 15s and 7s doesn't always work. So a bit frustrating from, from my point of view. And Rob, so the, the aspect that you'd change would be to the premiership clubs to release some of their younger potential seven stars. Absolutely. And that's the question I can throw back to you and say, what would stop you having someone like a Joe Cock and a singer who was in and about flourishing on the premiership and then had a little bit of a spell where perhaps wasn't always involved? You know what it's like. If you go on the seventh series as a winger, you're not going to get worse. You're going to get used to that exposure, big environments, 50,000, 60,000 people. So it's to get the buy-in of people like yourself, Nick, to say, actually, I can see that as developmental, which actually is what Gregor Townsend's starting to do now with, with likes of George Horn. Yeah, I mean, we definitely used to do it. The likes of Dylan Armitage, Nils Moore yeah. left London Irish and they went and won, and won medals. And uh, it did develop their game, you know, the individual breakdown skills, the handling, the fitness. To be honest, in, while I was in the job, I was never asked. Um, I exited a couple of my academy guys, senior academy guys, 18, 19 year olds into the sevens route because I thought that would be good for their long term development. But it was never a, a, a premiership club and a, and a sevens thing. It was a very, very separate. Once released, I spoke to the coach there, Simon Amor, and said, look, these guys could do it. And, uh, and look, for example, Cam Cowell went on to, to do great things there and then get signed up back into a premiership club with Newcastle. It's both enlightening to hear that and, and quite saddening that you know the question needs to be asked regularly. And that's one thing, looking back, when Matt Friday was in charge, he, he did have quite a good relationship with the Premiership team. So you'd have a core squad of 8 to 12 players, and then every single Premiership club had to nominate three players, yeah. which was brilliant to be part of. And you know, it gave you a real focus for where you wanted to go. And now, you know, you stare down the barrel of Commonwealth Games, World Series, World Cup, and Olympics that, you know, there's going to have to start changing conversation, surely. Yeah, because the players would love it. Just, uh, just the, uh, the opportunity to maybe go to one of those places. They'd absolutely love it. Yeah, perhaps not tricking them. That might be a bit too close. To <laughs> certainly, certainly do buy the kid in December, no doubt. Or oh, San Francisco in July. Rob Rickerman, uh, great as usual. Thank you very much. No problem. Nick, just the little question of the Champions Cup final. Leinster, Racing. Anywhere Racing can win? I think, look, Racing have got a superstar squad. You, you can bring Dan Carter off the bench, you're doing all right. Um, Leinster are, are the better drilled team. They're the, the better organised team. However, Racing have got good coaches. The, the two Laurents, they've been around. They've, they've won the league down there in, in France with Cast. They're, they're very, very good coaches, good rugby minds, and they've got some absolute superstars at their disposal. So I think it'll be a close game. And Leinster's power game, they, they do everything on the gain line and they've got these brilliant structured moves. They, they carry very well. Their breakdown is ruthless. But Rassing with the likes of Nakarara, as I said, their Carter coming off the bench, these guys can, can pluck something out of nowhere. They can score a try from nowhere. And then the pressure's all of a sudden on Leinster. And they have been there before and that they can handle the pressure. But on those huge occasions in front of that many fans, if wrestling can rattle them early on, um, I, I think it's going to be a cracking game of rugby. It's two, two heavyweights. For me, the two best teams in Europe, they thoroughly deserve to be there. And it's a game I'm really looking forward to watching. For me, the only way that wrestling can win is that if two or three of their superstar backs just have stellar games, if you're looking at someone like Teddy Tummer, who seems to be able to just run through people you know, and, and, and shred defences. If he were to have an absolutely blinding game and get a hat-trick, then I can see that happening. Otherwise, I just think Leinster, patient build-ups, keeping the ball, controlling the game, you know, very much in the same way that Ali Hogg said, you've got to keep the ball off them, otherwise you won't see it for you know, at least sort of 50, 55 minutes of the game. With a limited amount of possession, if they can strike... 
then there's a possibility. Otherwise, I just think Leinster are too good. Yeah, and you're right to pick out Teddy Tom out there. He can score a try from nowhere. And he can beat three people on his way to the try line. Leinster have got a very well-drilled defence. You know, One of the best defences in Europe, if not the best defence in Europe. So you need a little bit of magic. You need something special. And that is what this racing team have. Now, for me, the thing that throws the odds back in Leinster's favour again is, is Machineau. He makes them tick. And you speak about that control that Leinster have every week. He can give that to Racing. But now with his injury, that is that is a, a big, big plus for Leinster and a huge negative for Racing. His goal kicking has been superb as well. So he is a huge, huge loss. And just very quickly, Cardiff Blues in Gloucester. Gloucester looking for a third title. If well, Gloucester, we know, notoriously inconsistent. But again, when things go well, some exceptional players. They should beat Cardiff, shouldn't they? Friday night down in Bilbao. The weather's meant to be good on Friday <laughs> and then bad on the Saturday. So, um, you know, Gloucester will go down there full of full of the ambition that they've played with all season and they'll look to run it from everywhere and, you know, unleash their backs on, on Cardiff Blues. But you get the feeling Cardiff Blues have, have overachieved this year. At the beginning of the year, they've, they've, they've lost a couple of players from their squad due to financial reasons and um, Danny Wilson announced that he was leaving early on. But, He's been excellent. He he has beaten some huge teams, some David and Goliath moments he's had throughout the season in the league and in this European campaign. And this is going to be his last game there. And you can see the players just putting in that that, that high top-end performance that they're going to need to and grinding out a win. Uh, again, I think it'll be another fantastic game. Two teams that um, that are going to go there to play and they'll be desperate for silverware this year. That's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact. Thank you very much to my co-host Nick Kennedy and as always my producer Abby Patterson. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. We'll be back next week. But for now, it's goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.